So women have always been there, you know, they're, they're 50% of the community. All the decisions about safety and food and security and well-being of the people comes through them. They filter what their family eats. They decide where to plant things. They have agency and decision-making about, you know, feasts and celebrations and all these aspects of a, of a livelihood and a society um, that's thriving. You know, looking back and learning from um, our traditional ways of knowing and being and doing and using that to help navigate the present but also moving forward into the future when it comes to adapting to issues of uh, climate change. For so long we've had our history documented by colonizers, outsiders, you know, and we need to write our own story, that's really important. You my greetings and Hello, Ogeta. I wish to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land from which we broadcast today, the Ngunnawal and Nambri people, and also pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Today, our security discussion builds on the recent celebration of International Women's Day. Oftentimes, we reflect on this event by sharing stories of success and achievements of women across our blue Pacific continent, but also bring to the table issues that we feel are seldom heard. This speaks to the diversity of our Pacific region and of the issues confronting our women today. We appreciate and celebrate these unique differences in a region and a world where difference is valued. I am delighted to welcome to the show today two brilliant women and academics here at the ANU who are also daughters of the Pacific. Dr. Gemma Melvena Maluhangu is a Tongan Research Fellow with the Department of Pacific Affairs. Her background is in health sciences, public health, and qualitative research. She undertook her undergraduate studies and the majority of her postgraduate studies at the University of Auckland, New Zealand, and completed her PhD in 2020 titled Too Little Space. And these, I understand, reflects experiences and perspectives of housing and housing policy, Tongan families with rheumatic fever in South Auckland, and also includes key housing informants. Her research findings supported earlier research that underlines the issue of systemic racism and essentialism that occurs within the socio-political sphere influencing poor decision-making processes. The findings led to the development of a policy framework called the Lolonati. Am I saying that correctly, Dr. Gemma? Uh, yes, uh, Lolonati. Lolonati. Uh, model to help improve the decision-making process and addressing the rights of Pacific peoples to adequate housing, and thus aiming to improve the overall health and well-being of Pacific peoples in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and the diaspora in general. Dr. Gemma, welcome to the Pacific Wayfinder. Well, a uh, very comprehensive introduction. My love, Vito. Yeah, very happy to be here. Um, thank you for having me. And I am also delighted to welcome today Dr. Teresa Mickey, another Pacific Research Fellow with the Department of Pacific Affairs and Coral Bell School of Asia Pacific. Teresa completed her PhD with the Department of Pacific Affairs last year. Her research focuses on women's presence and vote share in Papua New Guinea's election history. She is interested in elections and women's political representation in Melanesia more broadly. Prior to commencing her candidature with DPA, um, Teresa worked as a field producer and research assistant for the DFAT-funded Power Mary Film Project, a partnership between the Victoria University of Mel and Melbourne and the University of Goroka in Papua New Guinea. Dr. Teresa, a warm welcome to you also. Good morning. Thank you for having me. 
Okay, so to kickstart our meroro, as we say in Kiribati, our dialogue or conversation, allow me very quickly to acknowledge the rich backgrounds that you both come from. Dr. Gemma, with your work in health sciences and qualitative research, and Dr. Teresa in politics and vote share in Papua New Guinea, these are two distinct areas critical for development in, and security in our Blue Pacific home. From the lens of your research work, my first question is, what is the distinct role that you see women play in national security, in particular their traditional roles and their contributions to policy making in the Pacific? Yeah, um, would you like to go first, Teresa? Oh, no, you first. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever feels um, comfortable to go first. Um, a very uh, broad, uh, beautiful question and an important one. Um, as we are all aware, the usually national security is defined from uh, the traditional perspective of, um, you know, the importance of military and defence. Uh, and as we know, in the Pacific, um, security means a lot more and a lot more than that. It's a lot broader and a lot more deeper, and it's connected to who we are as a peoples. Um, in terms of the role of Pacific women in the context of national security, I feel that uh, as strong and resilient Pacific women, we bring to the table very important um, perspectives aligned with that of the importance of resilience. Um, in terms, you know, as you all know, the Pacific is a very uh, diverse region, uh, both culturally, linguistically, but also ethnically as well. And so, um, of course, women come from all walks of life uh, across the Pacific and have very different views of what security means to them, not only as individual powerful women within their own families, but also what it means to them as a village and as a community as well. And so um, with those perspectives, I think with women um, having the opportunity to be able to voice their views at a more, uh, not only a national level, but also at a, a you know, at a more um, village level, as well as a province or a district level as well in, in the context of PNG, um, and to be able to have a say about, you know, the safety, the safety of women. Um, as we know, there's a lot of high rates of violence, there's high rates of abuse, um, not only physically and sexually, but also the um, emotional and psychological uh, issues of, um, poor mental health and that was uh, an increasing um, and through anecdotal evidence that had um, mental health issues uh, had increased during COVID mm. um, and so you know looking at that um, that essence or that that uh, aspect of what security means and the safety of our Pacific women uh, within the village. And I know that and I feel that women can bring a lot to the table when, um, in terms of discussions about, you know, ensuring that we incorporate that aspect of security in itself. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you very much. I, I really like how you set the tone, opening the discussion on this, right? Looking at um, security, not in traditional sense, but in, in the Pacific lens, through the Pacific lens rather, and, and understanding it from all the diversity that you mentioned, and then slowly pulling in back women, which is, you know, the focus of today's um, discussion. I would want to invite you, Teresa, to also um, contribute to that. Um, yeah, thank you. So for the aspect or the angle that I'm coming from with women in politics, um, we in the Pacific fare very poorly compared to the rest of the world. Um, it's not that we don't have agency. A lot of women in the Pacific, I feel that since 
um, you know, missionization and colonization, that traditional agency that women had to, you know, be influential in decision-making that affected their family or their clan or their tribe through their husbands or their uncles or their spouses, whatever network they had, got lost along the process. And this, the last couple of decades has been for women to fight to get back into that space. Mm. So women have always been there. You know, they're, they're 50% of the community. All the decisions about safety and food and security mm. and well-being of the people comes through them. They filter what their family eats. They decide where to plant things. They have yes. agency and decision-making about, you know, feasts and celebrations and all these aspects of a, of a livelihood and a society um, that's thriving. But I feel that they've kind of been demarcated to a certain space so women still have agency and have mm. voice probably in the local setting or in the village or in the home or in these confines but it does not mean that they don't have anything to say or they can't contribute because they're always there I just it just seems that they're more in the background and the whole journey of trying to get women in parliament is to bring mm. their experience and their lived experiences and all of that what they have to the fore so that they can um, influence policy and have their say at the table. Mm. Um, that's a struggle at the national level we still go through, but that does not mean that at the local level in the village where a lot of our communities still live, women still have a lot of impact and say in the spaces where they occupy. Wow, brilliant. Yes, so thank you for sharing that perspectives from your um, research um, lens. The Australia Pacific Security College aims to strengthen our blue Pacific continent through learning, policy engagement and regional collaboration. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn and find our library of research, blogs, podcasts and videos on our website, pacificsecurity.net. Our podcast, The Pacific Wayfinder, brings together leading voices on our shared security challenges. Stay up to date on the latest thinking on Pacific security and subscribe to the Pacific Wayfinder wherever you get your podcasts. And just building on that question um, and discussion we just had, how do you see the role of women in the context of climate adaptation? Uh, well, I'll just continue since I was talking previously. Um, so when it comes to women and how before getting into climate adaptation, how climate change affects them. So the women, um, and I speak as a, as a Highlander, as someone from Papua New Guinea, who when I go to the market, majority of the people are women. They're the ones selling their produce. That means that they're, they're the ones in the gardens as well. And I know their husbands and their male partners play a big role in, in doing that as well. But it's not what you see when you get to the market. You see the women at the forefront of you know, this very important um, cash economy and livelihood. Now, when something like a drought happens or when there's rain continuously, when seasons are out of sync as we've been experiencing, that means, you know, corn might not be growing at the time that it should be or certain vegetables and fruit. And it's the women who have to, you know, navigate that. So, okay, that's not going to come. So what's the backup crop, you know? And I'm just talking really right, right down to the village level. What kind of food do I get to feed my family? How can... The, what can I find that's nutritious enough to get us to the next stage where that crop will come to harvest, mm. you know? So these type of decisions, they're making all the time. That's right. But, so we just have to listen and get out there and listen to how they're navigating in their livelihoods, day-to-day -day decisions that they're making. Because, mm. um, you know, we talk about big things and fuels, but a lot of people in the Pacific still live in this, you know, they're still farmers. Mm. That's how they survive. Mm. And I think that they're navigating all the time. We just have to pay attention and 
document their stories and put it out there because it um it can impact people that are making decisions to look and you know take into account thank you thank you for that yep and so there are a lot of best practices that our women yeah. in the Pacific can teach us, right? Yeah, and oftentimes yeah. we're reflected in negative light, right? The Pacific that's um, suffering all the time, victims all the time. Mm. And then you're telling us now women have been there for hundreds of years, you know, adapting to these changes all the time mm. and being resilient. Yeah, there's. Um, I'll just give a little anecdote. Um, so my mom... She's a cafe lady. She comes from the Eastern Highlands. And she was telling me how, like, in times of drought, they actually, you know, the banana plant, mm. they actually eat the root of it. So it's not, you don't, but they peel it off and there's a way of cooking it because that's the thing that will last the longest. So the banana itself might not be growing, but wow. it's right at the bottom where yeah. that's edible. And, like, that's not common knowledge, you wow. know, that's not yeah. sold in stores. And I'm hoping that we are documenting yeah. this information because they're absolutely critical mm. for the future generation. Yeah, I just hope that they they get more um, reflected in some of the policies, yeah. some of the preparation um, methods yeah. today. Dr. Gemma, did you want to add to that on climate change? Yeah, um, I, and that's an important aspect uh, that you both of you have touched on about, you know, looking back and learning from um, our traditional ways of mm -hmm. knowing and being and doing and using that to help navigate the present but also moving forward into the future mm -hmm. when it comes to adapting to issues of uh, climate change. And we can really learn, like, you know, that was a beautiful quote that you had shared with us from your mother, um, you know, about like how they used to use, uh, you know, those traditional um, ways of knowing about the plant to help us with surviving today. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it reminds me of, like, you know, the important notions of tapu and mana, where, like, you know, going back to, um, you know, our important um, historical but very rich cultural knowledge systems about, you know, the sacred... Um, our sacred ways of, you know, like living and also the um, the power that comes of that. And I know a lot of literature that talks about climate adaptation talks about the scientific mm. um, and more technological uh, aspects of how we could adapt to climate change. But actually, we're really missing the essence of who we are as a people's, our cultural identity, which is usually always lost uh, from generation to generation. But like you mentioned, it's about, um, you know, reminding ourselves of who we are and using that to help us navigate, you know, and, and of course, help us influence um, how we can adapt to to climate change. So I think that's the power of where we are as mm. Pacific women. We can really contribute <laughs> mm. to these discussions, not mm. only at the academic level, but also on the ground as well. Yep. Mm. Thank you so much. Yep. Um, I'm really liking the way that we're, we're going with the conversation, <laughs> ladies. Thank you so much. Um, and I want to go on to the uh, third question, which is on the powerful theme of International Women's Day, which is embracing equity. And how do you see this applied in terms of, and I'll pull away from the national security um, discussion, and how do you see embracing equity in the context of academia? And why do you think it's important for us to increase our Pacific women numbers in, in academia? Also, in, in thinking about your responses, uh, consider the women and girls that are watching today, and why would you encourage them to, to join the space that you're in? Um, the same leadership roles that you're in. 
It's a big question. It's a big question. <laughs> Sorry. I, I don't regard myself as a leader. Um, but for women to be in um, academia, I think it's very important for Pacific Island girls to get their voices out there. And, um, you know, speaking and sharing is one thing, but writing is also very important and publishing. And when we get to the stage of, you know, there's the who gets the privilege of getting their work become policy is another conversation. But yeah. for right now, it's important for us to document our narratives, our lived experience, all of that, so that it's there for the next person coming up to pull from these resources. Um, but yeah, I think that's important. A lot of, like in the Pacific for so long, we've had our history documented by colonizers, outsiders, you know, and we need to write our own story. That's really important. Um, yeah, that's what that's what I um I I try to do that as well. I'm not as writing as much as I should be, but that's the challenge that I set for myself that I need to document because my unique lived experience and and what I bring to the table, um, they matter and they're important and they can influence some policy down the line. I don't know just yet, but it's important for me to write. For the latest analysis on climate, environmental, human and national security trends in our Blue Pacific region, you can read the APSC blog at pacificsecurity.net. Our contributors come from across the region and include policymakers, practitioners and academics. If you would like to contribute, get in contact with our team through our website. Yeah, um, completely agree uh, with what you said, Teresa. And to add to that, when I think about equity, I think about the importance of leveling the playing field between Pacific and non-Pacific. And and so, like I know in the diaspora, we see that there's a uh, you know higher rates of non-Pacific uh, women and girls who. Um, who have the qualification and have access to education, tertiary, university, um, and so forth, and have the means to be able to access that. Of course, we know that for Pacific, uh, it, it, it is at a lower rate, but not only in the Pacific and the diaspora, but also for our young uh, women and girls in the Pacific region, there's... Um, there's less of an opportunity to be able to access, uh, you know, things like scholarships or the resources or the means to be able to access um, education in order to get into the academic space. So for me, when I'm thinking about, you know, that um, embracing equity aspect, it's about, you know, making sure that there's an increased opportunity, increased resources available so that our young Pacific women, our young Pacific girls actually can have that option, have that as an option. Of course they have an option in their mind, but when it comes to the actual logistics, the actual resources, the actual funding, um, I feel that we can do better. Um, to, to make that uh, an actual viable option for them to take. Um, once we're in academic, academia uh, as well, um, the retention rates for our Pacific um, in general is a lot lower than compared to non-Pacific. So making sure that, you know, when we have uh, an increase of Pacific scholars or academics within the institution, there's that, um, of course, we know that there's a greater support to help our, um, our Pacific girls, help our, our Pacific women, um, you know, provide that um, empowerment, that, mm. um, that support that they can, if I can do it, you can do it too. Mm. And so like, you know, it's a, that sharing the success, but also taking people with you um, as, you know, uh, for as me and Teresa um, being doctors at the 
Department of Pacific Affairs, um, you know, we see our success as not as individuals, but we see it as a success of our family, our village, but also like bringing with us people that we can um, also elevate and, and, mm-hmm. and take along in the journey. And that's that's important. I know that there has been anecdotal <laughs> um, evidence through our own connections where it's sad to see that some women put down other women, particularly in the Pacific. And what we want to do and what we want to see is that we help support each other and empower each other to um, climb not only the academic ladder, but also every other ladder, social, uh, social uh, economics, um, you know, f- finances, uh, and so forth. And so it's about celebrating each other, supporting each other, um, you know, to, to be successful mm. uh, and nurture each other, you know, to flourish. Mm. Because if we're not going to help support each other, then who is, you know? Mm. Um, and, and, and so I'm not saying this to... to put people down but it's it's I think it's an important um, message that we ought to share with uh, the future generation uh, I don't want to use that term people use it a lot and sometimes it but you know mentorship so what I do is um, make a concerted effort to be because I have friends who are in their 70s women 60s 50s 40s and then I have a friend who's like 16 15 20 so like have vertical friendships rather than just being with your peers and in that way you're indirectly mentoring them by just listening to them telling them about you know your day their day you learn so much by engaging with younger people and with older people um so if there's one encouragement that i'd like to leave out there make intentionally seek out a younger person and an older person and befriend them just be a part of their lives and that's you know you can learn a lot and you can give a lot because you have a lot to give um, and that happens through genuine friendships. Sometimes we put them in mentorship and then it becomes this thing where you have to be thinking about their careers and how to guide them in that way. But people learn on their own and sometimes they just need someone to bounce ideas off with. And I think it's important to have those vertical friendships. I've mentioned that in other spaces, but because we're on record, I thought I'd say that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's extremely important. And I really value the the discussion, ladies. I, I, I guess for me, the big takeaways from from what you just gave me is access Mm. providing access for our pacific women empowerment these are really very powerful themes right we want to empower them to also grow like everyone else but i want to also acknowledge um, the trailblazing women of the pacific who entered the the field and provided the way for us and look mm. at you you've also joined that so if i may just quickly say konai helu you know from tonga the the late um Te- teresia tewa got rest her soul um sarah nepi linda tuhiwai a host mm. of you know uh, pacific scholars who have gone ahead of us and now you you two are becoming the face of the the new generation so thank you for sharing that um experience uh, for us um moving on to My last question, aside from stories of women breaking ceilings and breaking barriers, what are leading issues of concern for Pacific women and girls that we need to focus more work on? Um, I think a big issue that's happening that more attention needs to be placed on is just violence against women and just the threat of their safety. there's such a stark difference to say walking around in Port Moresby or somewhere and then walking around in Canberra that really brings to light the issue of safety. Mm. Uh, you know, like when you're here, 
you don't have that consciousness or awareness that I need to hold my bag closely or that someone's cat calling me or, you know, you don't feel fearful. Mm. And it's such a great liberating feeling to walk from ANU to the bus stop at 10 p.m., which you can never do back home in your country, right? Mm. So it would be lovely and great if we could create that type of environment. And that's not just a women's thing. That's a whole nation society thing. We need to build safe places for our our girl children, our young boys, to walk around freely from school and back and forth and not feel like someone's going to roll up and pick them up or they're going to get bullied or just... I really worry about the safety of how it is that how stark it is between our society and the West. And there's a lot that needs to be done in that space. Hmm. And it's a, you know, it's across all sectors, but that's something that I worry about. I recently become an, became an aunt. So I'm always thinking about the safety <laughs> of my niece and, and my nephew. I'm like, oh, what's it yes. like? And are they going to go yeah. to school or do we need to pick them up? Or, you know, just that whole thing yeah. plays in your mind when you experience different stages of life these things come become more pronounced in your mm. in your space of thinking and that's one thing that I've um, realized more now than before yeah and thank you for that Dr. Deris I I echo that sentiment I also would want a world that's safe for our children to roam around without mm. having to feel threatened you know about their security you're so right mm. in bringing that up um Dr. Gemma any any yeah um i guess one aspect of safety that i'd like to add to the discussion is um and it might not necessarily be a leading issue but it is an important issue nonetheless is the importance of cultural safety um and it was a I guess a concept that was coined by uh, Eddie Harperty Ramsden from uh, New Zealand, and it concerns the importance of uh, both Pacific but also non-Pacific's peoples um, being able to have that critical consciousness and uh, being able to understand their own uh, implicit biases and then how that actually influences the interaction with other people. So this might not necessarily be a key issue for women, Pacific women or Pacific girls uh, per se, but it is an issue across the across the board uh, for all, uh, I guess, Pacific and also, um, you know, other multicultural um, peoples as well. And so like, like, you know, being able to really um, bring to the fore the important aspect of like, you know, am I, um, is my interaction with this individual, um, you know, causing an issue in terms of, um, you know, how I perceive them and therefore um, not being able to provide or deliver um, a proper lecture or, you know, being able to educate um, and treat people equally. And I know that, of course, I have my own implicit biases too as a Pacific woman, but at, like, you know, whether or not that leads to detrimental um, interaction with others. I know that uh, in the here within the academic space, just taking it back there, a lot of the time um, when I was going into union, when I was taking classes, you can, um, if the lecturer was non-Pacific um, and would provide examples that were non-Pacific and Eurocentric uh, and very uh, aligned with that of the Western paradigm and ideal, I felt less than and the, my self-worth was lowered because I couldn't relate to that particular lecture or that class. And so I would less likely want to study for that because I 
couldn't relate to that. And so that in itself is an example of poor aspects of cultural safety that's been practiced. Um, you know, you're teaching in a university where there is a uh, a number of Pacific um, students, and so therefore being able to apply that um, in, in, in the class itself, right? And so making people feel safe in their own identity, in their own culture, um, so that they could thrive um, and also flourish and survive in that academic space or whatever space it is that we might find our young Pacific women and girls or even just our, our boys and men. Um, and it's not only secluded to the academic space, it's, you know, it's across the broad, broad in whatever field, even in the workspace too, right? Um, and so making sure that there's equity um, in uh income or like the way that your supervisor or your boss treats um you know different um people within that that job so it's it's important <laughs> like sorry to take it uh to this uh, certain aspect but I, I feel like it's an important one that uh is always or sometimes overlooked um particularly I guess maybe in academia um, and so forth and so that's just adding to the previous question that we talked about in terms of you know um, the academic space and, and empowering and ensuring that there is access so yeah there's physical access into the institution but it's also that you know that continual um, access in terms of um, being seen and being able to have that opportunity to have your voice listened to or heard um, by all people of colour, um, particularly at the even at the institutional level, the high up level, uh, making sure that um, there's space for us. Thank you very much, uh, ladies. And I really like that we ended on that cultural note. We started off with concerns about the risk of safety that women face, uh, domestic violence, and, and the list goes on. And then we come back to the role that cultural identity and cultural security plays. And I think that's very powerful because in our Pacific communities, we have our own traditional practices that I want to, I just want to comment on one from Kiribati's uh, curfews, where we, by six o'clock in every village, a village gets together for devotion and nobody goes around the village, right? And this is something that I feel is now being threatened as we become an increasingly globalized <laughs> um, community. And I feel like with, with the introduction of TV, mobiles, and a lot of, you know, yeah. technologies, the, these cultural aspects are slowly uh, fading from, from our, the, our very, very eyes, yeah? So um, it, it's good that we sort of end and wrap up uh, the discussion uh, around that. We need to include more women in academia, get our voices out there. As you say, Teresa, very powerfully, it's about writing our own stories and, and motivating and empowering our own people and especially young women and girls. And um, well, that wraps up our conversation. Today, we have come to the end of our podcast, or podcast, but what an enthusing conversation that was. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you did too. I want to close by saying thank you to Mas. Uh, you have been very generous in sharing your time, but also your wisdom with us. And on behalf of the Pacific Wayfinder, I want to wish you well in your endeavors, in your work, uh, and in all that you do for our Pacific region. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.